back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. Today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. I'm actually going to be interviewing people that come from the Restoration or Joseph Smith's teachings who are not polygamous. Now we've done this before. We've had some uh, remnant followers and LDS folks on here before, but because we've been covering all these different traditions in the Restoration, I wanted to highlight one that I think that I've left out. I've had plenty of of their members come on the podcast because their church puts out really great uh, Mormon historians, but we haven't really focused on the Community of Christ before. Community of Christ, most people will know as the RLDS church, not FLDS, not Warren Jeffs's polygamous church, but RLDS, who most Mormons would know are the people who stayed in Nauvoo with Emma Smith, uh, Joseph Smith's wife. They never came across with Brigham Young. We've covered this history that Brigham Young and Emma had a very bitter struggle. Emma, of course, stays in Nauvoo and eventually founds this church or, in her mind, was you know keeping the lights on of the legacy that her husband restored. I have come to know members of the Community of Christ over the years, and they have what I credit um, helped me retain my faith in God. Uh, So when I went through my whole faith crisis as an LDS person with this podcast, you know, thinking, well, maybe everything in Mormonism is, is terrible and awful and weird, and the Community of Christ apostles and leaders and congregants were really great to work with me and and my questions on it. And although I'm not a member of their church, I really, really value their take on things because what I've seen them do is take some of the things that I found harmful or harmful to me in Mormonism and reinterpreted them in a way that I think is beautiful and healthy and inclusive and doesn't marginalize people. And it also doesn't ask anyone to give up their Mormon identity or their restoration roots. Now, Community of Christ wouldn't, they don't like the term Mormon. I am lazy a lot, and I lump them in with Mormons because I I see Mormons as anyone of the original Mormonite tradition, which was Joseph Smith and Emma Smith. But uh, Community of Christ, for years and years and years, were the anti-polygamy church, and that's what they built a lot of their doctrine on. And so, you know, over the years, they've they've had to have their own sort of crisis of faith as a church, realizing that maybe Joseph Smith actually was a polygamist. And some of their folk history was incorrect. And it's been really powerful for me to see this, what I would say is a, is a humbling experience for them. Uh, they are such a humble, beautiful people. And going through that process of realizing they were wrong has turned them into such what I think beautiful, understanding, inclusive people. Uh, it's sort of softened their hearts, to use a scripture term. They, going through this humility of realizing they're wrong has softened their hearts. And so I think you'll see that reflected today. I'm really honored to have two of the 12 apostles from their church, Robin Linkhart, who is a dear friend and mentor of mine, and Lachlan Mackay, who is also a dear friend and mentor and an amazing historian. And one of my good friends, Seth Bryant, who is not an apostle, but he is a um, historic sites director of the Kirtland Temple and all of the sites over there in Kirtland, and he's great. So what we're going to do is I'm going to, you know, I've interviewed all three of them, and we're going to sort of show you 
some of the basic history. Locke is going to cover the basic history of the church for us, of the community of Christ, and how they got to where they are. And then I'm going to ask Robin to tell us basic general beliefs. And then I'm going to have Seth talk about his conversion, because he's actually a Brighamite like us, the LDS. I hope he doesn't mind I'm saying this. I bug him about this all the time. It's probably irritating, but Seth has the coolest tattoo I've ever seen on his arm. Um, He has Community of Christ tattooed on his arm, but it's written in Deseret Alphabet, which honors both traditions because, it, you know, the Deseret Alphabet, of course, is the Brighamite tradition and Community of Christ is Community of Christ. And so he has both of those sort of um, as a symbol of both heritages, which I think Seth does a really great job at. Um, before we get started, I just want to say one shout out to someone, Logan Hill, who is helping do a project. We're doing a service project in Short Creek right now, um, and we would love your help. We're going to give the FLDS uh, their first prom. Uh, a lot of the adults never got to go to high school, and this is, of course, the Warren Jeffs polygamous group, not who we're talking about today. They are going to be doing their first prom, and so if you want to donate, there's a GoFundMe on my Facebook page. Uh, we need, we're trying to help raise money to buy a wood floor for the reception center that they're going to hold the prom at. And then Margaret Cook, who is the reception center owner, is going to try to start a reception center business. So you can support them and uh, the fundamentalists in Short Creek by donating to that. And I want to thank Logan Hill for helping us get that off the ground. Okay, so let's get into the episode. Uh, I'm going to first start with the wonderful Lachlan Mackay. My name is Lachlan Mackay. I'm an apostle in Community of Christ. I was born and raised in Jackson County, Missouri. Went away to University of Missouri and got Russian studies and economics degrees. Thought I was going to work for the U.S. government, but uh, accidentally fell in love with church history as I was going through that extended interview process. I picked up a book called Nauvoo, Kingdom on the Mississippi, and was just captured by the story. I'd been raised... RLDS slash Community Christ. My dad's Australian and his family joined the church in the 1880s there. Uh, On my mom's side, uh, I'd be a great, great, great grandson of Emma and Joseph Smith. Um, So, you know, raised with the story. But for whatever reason, uh, that early expression of New Mormon history just captured me. And I spent a summer in Nauvoo doing a museum management internship at our historic site here, Joseph Smith Historic Site. Spent a second summer at Kirtland, at the Kirtland Temple, and my timing was perfect, and I was invited to stay and be the first full-time site director there. After a number of years, I uh, had the privilege of having responsibility for all of our historic sites. Moved to Nauvoo in 2007, managed uh, the site as well, and became a member of the Council of Twelve and Community Christ in 2016. So what that means is, let's back up. So you have pioneer ancestry um, from Australia, and you're a direct descendant of Joseph and Emma. Uh-huh. And you, um, obviously, you're very educated. We, <laughs> You have a lot of credentials. And you're um, a professional historian, and now you're an apostle, what we would call an apostle for the community of Christ, which is former, formerly the RLDS. Correct. Yeah. I think most of my credentials, um, so I have undergraduate uh, degrees in Russian studies and economics. So really I'm, I'm a self-taught amateur historian. Um, and, and I just love the story. I'm passionate about the story. So it's easy to get 
uh, strange details to stick that most people aren't that interested in. Did you feel a certain sense of connection to your ancestors, Joseph and Emma, um, more more than anyone else because their family? Is there any family lore that you were particularly attached to? Hmm. So uh, I got to say that my favorite place, particularly in Nauvoo, but maybe in a much broader sense, is the Smith Family Cemetery here in Nauvoo. I just love being in that place. It's wonderfully peaceful, the Mississippi River out in front of you. But having said that, I don't think I do feel any special sense of connection to Emma and Joseph. Uh, uh, I'm, I love Emma, and I admire Joseph. Um, but, you know, I read the same books as everybody else. So I, of course, know my mom, and my mom knew her grandfather, Frederick Madison Smith. So I think I do feel some sense of connection to that generation, uh, you know, my great-grandfather. But beyond that, uh, it really is, um, uh, I read the same books as everybody else, so I don't know that I do, uh, can claim any special sense of connection. And maybe, what, maybe best case, 3% of my genetic material might come from Emma and 3% from Joseph. Um, kind of funny, people tell me all the time that, that I look like a smith, but it's a Mackay nose. It's, it's not a Smith nose. <laughs> I was just going to say that. There's something I see. I was going to say it's in your eyes, but um, yeah, maybe it's just us. You become this litmus or this Rorschach test where we project onto you how much Smith we think you are. That's got to be strange. That's probably some of it. In a, you know, Joseph was described as a fine looking man from the front, not so fine from the side. I think I do fit that description. Well, no, not the find from the front, but definitely not the find from the side. Um, it is, it is kind of uncomfortable. It's in no way am I embarrassed about those connections, but I'm really, really introverted and it's uncomfortable to be the center of attention. So I definitely don't lead with those family connections. So, Locke, I was hoping, I know this is hard for someone who is such a, you know, a well of knowledge, but maybe there, there are so many misunderstandings about the community of Christ, especially from any Brighamite tradition, anyone that came over from the West. So, could you give us like a brief, you know, 20, 30 minute 101 history of the RLDS, how they turned, you know, stayed back, how they changed the community of Christ and where you're at now? Of course, Joseph is killed June 27th of 1844, and um, not immediately, but over a period of months following, uh, a number of conflicts began to develop in Nauvoo, and eventually between Emma Smith and Brigham Young and, and others. But when I think about the conflict between Emma and Brigham, I think about the three Ps. I think that, that they're struggling over questions about plural marriage or polygamy. Um, Emma, of course, not a fan. They are struggling over questions about papers, Joseph's diaries and journals and letters. Are they Joseph's and therefore Emma's, or are they the church's? Uh, well, copyright rests with the family, but the church would have bought the paper and the ink and paid the scribes. So I, I understand where both Emma and Brigham would have been coming from on that question. But that, that was a significant point of contention. And then, of course, the question of property, of, of real estate. Um, the church used a mechanism here called trustee and trust 
to own property. It's all in Joseph's name as trustee. And so you can't really tell what's Joseph's personally and therefore Emma's and what's the church's in Joseph's name. So Emma's worried about feeding her children. Brigham Young is worried about feeding folks as they cross the plains. Again, I, I empathize with both of as those struggling with those things, but, but that developed into a pretty significant conflict. Emma, it seems, ended up inheriting the debt, but not the assets, which would have been a very difficult position for, for her to be in, of course. And what she did end up with in the Nauvoo area, it seems that she had to buy back at tax sales. Um, pretty difficult. So she chose to remain in the Midwest. She fled from Nauvoo in September of 1846 as the Battle of Nauvoo is breaking out. There are, um, and I don't use the term mob lightly, but I think this would apply to this group of men coming in, trying to drive the last of the Latter-day Saints out. They're attacking with cannons. Uh, the remaining Latter-day Saints in Nauvoo have joined with what are called new citizens, non-Latter-day Saints who moved in to buy empty homes and businesses. Um, we're fighting back with cannons, but we lose. As part of the surrender agreement, every remaining Latter-day Saint had to go. Emma fled with her family as that battle was breaking out. They moved north to Fulton, Illinois. She's there for about five months. William Marks, who was the stake president in 1840s Nauvoo, was there, and some other church members who had chosen not to go west. So Emma finds refuge there with them, but eventually discovers that the person who's renting her mansion house hotel is about to steal all her furniture. <laughs> So she rushes back, catches him, throws him out, and lives out her life here in Nauvoo. Now, so do, we, do we know her feelings about her husband? We obviously know about polygamy. One of the big contentions, uh, is it fair to say that the biggest contention between um, those who stayed and those who uh, left and came west was polygamy? I do think that that was underlying almost everything, questions about polygamy. So it there are other expressions of, of the disagreement, things like succession, you know, who should lead. But even then, if you knew about polygamy and supported it, you probably chose to support a leader who knew and supported. So and you know, if you knew and rejected, you chose to support a leader who knew and rejected. So uh, polygamy's tentacles really managed to, to, to grasp almost everything that's happening. It, it underlies the conflict in almost every way. You know, so Emma's has a rocky time after the death of her husband. Talk to us about her children and how that plays into the restoration. So Emma, when she makes it back to Nauvoo, she, she is quoted as saying in Fulton, Illinois, I have no friend, but God and no place to go, but home. And so she came back to Nauvoo uh, moved in, raised her children here, raised them, I think, to be good Christian children. Joseph III talks about uh, growing up here, and um, he would attend church with his Catholic friends and his Methodist friends and his Presbyterian friends, kind of the social life for young adults centered around the churches. Um, but she did not raise them to be specifically Latter-day Saints after their, their father's death. Um, by the 1850s, there were representatives of the various Latter-day Saint tradition churches in existence by them who would pass through Nauvoo, come back to see the Smith family, 
almost everybody who stopped to see Emma would ask her about polygamy, which had to be pretty frustrating for her. Uh, but some of those people were also inviting the Smith family to join their particular expression of the movement. Um, missionaries for the new organization, so groups of people in northern Illinois and southern Wisconsin, who initially had followed either James Strang or William Smith, uh, become the new organization they called it in 1850s. Um, our legal name was the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but there was too many of them out there, so the new organization. These groups of people really only had two things in common. They believed that monogamy was the appropriate form of Christian marriage, and they believed that a child of Joseph should lead them. And painfully for these people, both James Strang and William Smith are publicly teaching monogamy, but it turns out privately practicing plural marriage, polygamy. So James Strang, for example, eventually is traveling the country with his nephew, Charlie Douglas, who it's discovered eventually is really his first plural wife dressed up as a boy. So these people were just devastated by those experiences. They start coming back together in the early 1850s, and they have a president pro tem, but they're just kind of waiting for a child of Joseph to, to join them. They sent missionaries to Nauvoo in 1856. Joseph Smith III stopped just short of kicking them out of his house. Um, but one of those missionaries stayed in Nauvoo for a year and continued to work with Joseph III and develop a relationship with him. Joseph Smith III, over the next few years, had a series of experiences in his life, one of which was very reminiscent of his father's first vision um, that led him to believe he should join with the reorganization, the new organization. So he and Emma, his mom, in 1860, traveled to Amboy, Illinois, and formally affiliated. They joined on their original baptisms. Uh, so we're not rebaptized, but joined on their original baptisms April of 1860. On that day, Joseph III said some interesting things. Uh, he said, among other things, I believe in the Bible and the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, which are auxiliaries to the Bible, which I thought was kind of an interesting statement. He also said that he believed his father was not involved in polygamy because his father was a good man. And in his understanding, a good man wouldn't do that. But he also said, if he did, I think he was wrong. Um, so joined with us in 1860 uh, and moved back, came back to Nauvoo. Emma lived out her life here, dying in 1879. Joseph III ended up moving on to Plano, Illinois in 1866, and then to Lamoni, Iowa in the early 1880s, and then finally Independence, Missouri, 1906, died there in 1914. How did people view him? And if you could compare, because you're familiar with the Brighamite tradition, how did people view his leadership as opposed to maybe how Mormons, traditional Mormons, mainline Mormons, um, view their prophet? So how do people view Joseph Smith III's leadership? Yes. He was much beloved. Uh, he was a pragmatist. Um, and so he wouldn't generally uh, force his opinions on others. And he would select his battles very carefully. And he had a, kind of an interesting take on 
um, what his father taught. So, you know, he's hearing all kinds of things. So he would, and his, he's only 11 and a half when his dad is killed. So Joseph III would turn to the scriptures and to the church newspapers to learn more about what his father taught. And what that meant is that he learned what his dad's public teachings were, not so much the, the private or secret teachings of the Nauvoo period. And so Joseph III, again, based on the public teachings and the scriptures, kind of reoriented the reorganization. And we end up, and this was an intentional saying, if it happened after this date, we don't accept it. But in effect, we, we become something like moderate Mormons, reflecting much better Joseph Smith Jr.'s 1830s Kirtland teachings. So common consent, still very important. A temple based on the Kirtland model, a house for public worship with a strong emphasis on empowerment, both spiritually and intellectually. So very much a pragmatist, a moderate Mormon. And Joseph III, if somebody disagreed with him, said, that's fine. You're welcome to believe as you do. I'm just not going to give you the pages of the Saints Herald, our church publication, to promote your view. I'm going to ask you not to teach it in public ministry. So widely accepting of, of various uh, beliefs uh, and just didn't provide the resources of the church to promote the beliefs he didn't agree with. And he knew that he was young and that he would outlive these people and he would win in the end. And he did. Yeah. And uh, what book, there's a book um, about his life. What can you give us a title and recommend it for listeners? I can. I think the best biography of Joseph Smith III is Roger Lanius's Pragmatic Prophet, the University of Illinois title. Perfect. And we'll link to that as well. So walk us into the modern era from his leadership to where you guys are now. So under Joseph Smith's leadership, we grew from about 300 members to 72,000 by his death in 1914. Uh, Joseph III was concerned about the succession struggle at his father's death. He wanted to make sure the same thing didn't happen. So he put out a letter of instruction detailing very carefully how he understood succession should work in community of Christ based on section 43 of the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about the prophet president designating their successor and R-104, which I believe is LDS-107, which talks about the leading quorums of the church being equal in authority. So they can go in prayer uh, and, and designate leaders as well. So Joseph III designated his son, Frederick Madison Smith, who was uh, a, a psychologist, studied under G. Stanley Hall, uh, at Clark University, a scientist, really amazingly bright guy. And Fred M., as we call him, Fred M., was very much focused on building Zion, this idea of a perfect community with no poor and no war. And he was really interested in all kinds of interesting experiments related to collective farming um, and kind of industrial Zion, he would have called it. And under his direction, we start a number of programs like the sanitarium, um, which would take off under Fred M. He was the the first graduate of what is now Graceland University, our church college in Lamoni, Iowa. But unfortunately, the depression got in the way 
of many of his Zion building attempts. And so uh, he dies in 1946, and his full brother, Israel A. Smith, uh, succeeds him. Israel, in some ways, was more like Joseph Smith III in that he was kind of a kind and gentle soul. Kind of returned us to the much-beloved Fred M. I think most people didn't know this about him, but he couldn't see very well. And so people would walk past him in the hall, and he wouldn't acknowledge them, and they'd be offended, they'd be hurt not knowing that he, he just didn't recognize him. Uh, Israel, his brother, on the other hand, uh, much beloved, very gregarious, very friendly. And Israel kind of focused us on building Zion wherever we're at. This idea of Z Zion uh, is the, the pure in heart. Um, we continued our international expansion under Israel. He is killed in a car accident. I believe that was 1956. Um, and he is succeeded by their half-brother, W. Wallace Smith. So I had to back up and tell you that Joseph Smith III is widowed twice, married three times, having children in his 70s. He was succeeded by three of his sons in the office of prophet president in the reorganization, the third of whom became our president 98 years after his father had so again, Joseph III, to Fred M., to Israel A., to W. Wallace Smith, prophet president 98 years after his father had first assumed that role. W. Wallace eventually designated his son Wallace B., and it was kind of an interesting way that he did that transition. He chose to designate uh, Wallace B. Smith, who was an eye doctor, um, and then to step aside before W. Wallace's death. So Wallace B. had a, a period of several years kind of on the job training, and then W. Wallace stepped aside and lived until 1989. Uh, so a, a grandson of Joseph and Emma alive until 1989. Uh, Wallace B. became the prophet president in uh, 1978, I think that was, uh, and served in that role until he was succeeded by W. Grant McMurray. Uh, president McMurray then succeeded by Stephen Vesey, our current prophet president. So the last two gentlemen, W. Grant McMurray, Stephen Vesey, are not Smiths. Uh, we don't understand in Community of Christ that our prophets have to be Smiths. Our position would have been uh, lineage, um, lineage matters if, if all else was equal then and somebody is a Smith descendant and somebody was not, uh, then let's take lineage into consideration, uh, but, but doesn't have to be a Smith and has not been a Smith since 1996. Okay, so um, that's a big controversy that people, or I, not a controversy, I would say a stereotype um, that you guys have to have a bloodline, so that has obviously changed. Was that difficult for members who had sort of attached their faith and their heritage identity to that idea that it had to be a bloodline of Joseph Smith? So, yeah, even though the, the position of the church was not and had never been has to be a Smith, I think that some of our members' identity was probably built around the idea that we have a Smith. They were pretty excited about that. But I believe that for most of our members who felt strongly about that, they probably had stopped worshiping with us in the 1980s when we began ordaining women to priesthood offices. 
So the, the people who would be most uncomfortable with the fact that uh, our leaders weren't Smiths probably had already disconnected from the church. So it really wasn't much of a, a ripple. Let's talk about the big, the biggest ripple. This is one that has really shaped your modern church, and that is the ordination of women. And I know that's a, it's a big topic, and we're going to have Robin Linkhart weigh in on that as well. But just give us sort of the brief historical points to what happened there. So do you want me to start in 1830 with the elect lady revelation or jump to the 1980s? Yeah, you can set it up. <laughs> set it up for us. That's fine. So um, our section 24, and I apologize, I don't remember the LDS section, but Harmony, Pennsylvania, uh, the elect lady revelation, Emma is called to expound scripture um, and, and she's called to be ordained. The Relief Society, fast forward to the Relief Society organization in Nauvoo in the red brick store here. And Emma's counselors are being ordained. And somebody says to Joseph, well, what about Emma? And Joseph said, well, Emma already was ordained back in Harmony. So I, I don't know exactly what it means. I don't b believe it means that Emma and her counselors were ordained to priesthood offices. But I do think there's a compelling argument that priesthood authority was conveyed to them the priesthood, but not the office, which is an appendage to the priesthood. And of course, women in 1840s here in Nauvoo were offering healing blessings. Uh, Joseph said things to the Relief Society like, I turned the key to you. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priestesses and, and on and on. So very much priesthood-related language. Um, Fast forward in the 1930s in the then RLDS Church, now Community Christ, Frederick Madison Smith, then our prophet president, started a discussion in the Saints Herald, our church newspaper, about women and priesthood roles and maybe an order of deaconesses. And should we talk about priesthood and women um, today? So he started that discussion, but it didn't go very far. In the 1960s, we would have had members, again, raising those questions. And by the 1980s, there would have been women being called, but the calls would not have been processed, meaning no action could have been taken. But church leaders would have been coming forward saying, I, I feel this call for this person who's female. But again, we weren't able to take action on those calls. My sense is that when Wallace B. Smith came to the church, in 1984 with what would become section 156 of our Doctrine and Covenants, which talked about building a temple in Independence, Missouri, but also talked about priesthood being available to, to both female and male. I think that was a surprise even to President Smith. I don't think that was planned well in advance. Uh, and so unfortunately that meant we were not well prepared to give our members tools to process change. It was understood as kind of disjunctive revelation separate from what has gone before. When I think that there's good evidence to suggest that, uh, that women were operating in priesthood roles in some form in the early church. And of course, the same is true uh, in the New Testament. So today we would have handled the ordination of women very differently when it comes to preparing members to process change. We would have the resources available that the best resources come from, the best sources, 
the Female Relief Society minutes in Nauvoo, and those, of course, weren't available to us in the 1980s. So I think that that the way um, our members processed change and the challenging response some had to it would be very different if we were to try and do that again today. And just talk about some of the fallout, because I do think, you know, people want to know why RLDS to Community of Christ. So maybe explain that change and how this plays in. Sure. So I'm not sure that the RLDS to Community of Christ change um, does play in, uh, but Robin might have some interesting insights on that. But we, President Smith came to the church in 1984 with this document that our, our conference, so we elect delegates who go and represent us at world conferences. And the majority of those attending the conference, uh, after prayer and debate and discussion and meditation and probably argument, the majority there voted to accept this document as section 156 of the Doctrine and Covenants, so to canonize it. But for some of our members, that was a very difficult change, and some chose to separate and worship separately. And they're still out there in many cases, uh, kind of collectively, they're known as the restoration movement, which is kind of confusing because we're all part of a restoration movement, but restorationists, sometimes known as a lot of really nice, fine folks, including some of my friends and family, but they, they chose to maintain their membership on the RLDS roles but to separate and worship separately in their own buildings. And the hope would have been early that, that our LDS leaders would at some point realize they'd made a mistake and would reverse that decision and that these people would have hoped that they could then come back. Um, and the restorationist movement is still ongoing. They're still in existence today. Um, more recently, let me talk about the name change. So, um, I read a letter in the Saints Herald, which is again, our church newspaper, and somebody was writing in and they were really annoyed about the name of the church. And they said, um, you know, the name of the church was originally the church of Christ. We should never have changed it. We should change it back now. Well, the date on the letter was 1860. <laughs> we have been arguing about church name for generations uh, so when church leaders at our 2000 general conference or world conference started a discussion again about the name change, I didn't think much about it because we've been talking about it for so long, but suddenly president McMurray offered his support to the idea of changing the name that kind of uh, captured my attention. And after some discussion, the church members voted to take that step. And so we are still legally reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but also known as Community of Christ. And I understand that what we have done has gone back to closer to the first name of the church, the Church of Christ, but we are stressing that Zion building or that community building heritage, a number of reasons for the name change. Um, you know, reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is really long. Reorganized has negative connotations in some cultures, that, that word, including in the U.S. context. Um, I've shown visitors at our historic sites in Kirtland and Nauvoo our 12-minute orientation videos, which feature our Independence, Missouri headquarters, 
I'd spend an hour with them on tour. As we finished, they would turn around and look back and say, oh, by the way, I was in Salt Lake and I love your choir. <laughs> you know, what can you say at that point? But thank you. Uh, so <laughs> there, there was significant confusion through the years. And we often ended up defining ourselves by who we were not versus who we, we are. So that, that was part of the reason, but not, not the dominant part. Um, so uh, made the transition in 2001, I believe it was. Uh, so Community of Christ, and I think it really much more accurately reflects our mission. We understand that we are called to be uh, the hands and feet of Jesus in the world today, and that, that Christ's mission is our mission. We're very much engaged in social justice, passionate about the worth of all persons, passionate about uh, those who might be on the fringes, passionate about equality um, without regard to gender or race or sexual orientation. Will you explain to us the relationship that your church has with the topic of plural marriage? As I think many of your listeners probably know, polygamy in Nauvoo was was top secret. There were very few leaders involved in it. And publicly, they're always denouncing it and denying involvement, while privately, some are teaching and practicing. The people who would become Community of Christ, um, in many cases, were in the branches outside of Nauvoo. So they believed the public statements. And even many of those in Nauvoo believed the public statements. But of course, privately, some were involved. So I'm sorry that Privately, some knew that church leaders were involved. William Marks, the stake president in 1840s Nauvoo, uh, would say consistently, even before he joined the reorganization, though, no, Joseph did it. He was involved. But prior to his death, William said, Joseph decided it was a mistake and, and it was going to destroy the church if we didn't get it stopped. And so William said that, Joseph asked him to press charges to those who were involved while he, Joseph, uh, spoke out against it. But shortly thereafter, Joseph is killed. Um, William Marks is actually not the only one saying that, that Joseph was involved, but decided it was um, a mistake or was going to destroy the church. People like Hiram Smith tell William Law, we've stopped. We're no longer involved in the practice. William Law didn't believe Hiram when he said that, though. Brigham Young said, uh, I know Joseph is tired of it. As to his trying to get it stopped, I don't know. But again, most of the 12 were out on missions at this point in time, so they, they wouldn't know what was happening. And if you read the, the minutes of the last Relief Society meeting here in Nauvoo, Emma is saying something to the effect of, we should listen to what our leaders say publicly, and if they are truly repentant, we should forgive them. <laughs> Talking about plural marriage. I love um, that. Yeah. So Joseph the Third, though, remember he's a child when his dad is killed. He believed his dad's public statements. And he believed his mom who said Joseph didn't do it. And I think it's pretty clear that Joseph was not truthful with Emma on the topic, especially at times. So but many of the RLDS leaders believed Joseph was involved, but decided it was a mistake and was trying to get it stopped when he was killed. 
In fact, that's the, what the very first issue of the Saints Herald, 1860, says. He did it. He repented. We should forgive him. Joseph III couldn't believe it. <laughs> and he's young, so he outlived those other leaders. And so eventually, most of the members of the reorganization came to believe that Joseph didn't do it. They believed Joseph's public statements. Beginning in the 1960s, 70s, 80s with the New Mormon history, many of our members have reconsidered that and, and now would understand that Joseph was involved. Some think he was involved wholeheartedly to the end of his life. Some think he was involved, decided it was a mistake, was trying to get it stopped. Some still think he had nothing to do with it because they believe him when he said, I, I'm not doing it. Uh, so we're kind of all over the place on Joseph and plural marriage and community Christ. Has that been a struggle for members to grapple with, especially since a large part of your heritage has been based on the fact that he didn't practice plural marriage? Yeah, I think it's been a, a really significant struggle. And I've actually compared it to, uh, I, I think that, that we have gone through the stages of grief <laughs> when it comes to Joseph and polygamy. So I believe that initially... We're in denial. No, he didn't do it. And again, you can build a decent argument because he said repeatedly, I didn't do it. So we were in denial. We, we didn't believe that he did it. And then we got angry. Uh, and uh, some of our members are still in that anger phase. And I think because we were, we were angry and struggling, in some ways, we simply took our history and kind of set it on a shelf. It was just too painful to deal with. And we just didn't think about it. More recently, I think many of us have moved into the acceptance. I think we skipped bargaining, but have moved into the acceptance phase. And we're able to, to kind of take that heritage back down off the shelf, reclaim it, uh, un unwrap the package, recognize what is wonderful and powerful, and, and reclaim it. But also um, call out what we think is problematic like the way that women were treated uh, um, often in plural marriage in Nauvoo. Um, so, so I think it's a much healthier position, a much healthier place that we are moving into to, to openly and honestly explore the past, claim what is wonderful, claim what is hurtful and painful, and learn from the past as we move into the future. Well, this is this is really great. Thank you, Locke. Is there anything else you want to say or want people to know about the community of Christ? Uh, it's been a joy to talk. Um, well, I talk, Lindsay. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate the you're opportunity. You're the best. Thank you. All right. My name's Robin Linkhart, and I currently serve Community of Christ in the Office of Apostle as a member of the Council of Twelve Apostles. My assignment is in the USA, and my field is called North Central USA Mission Field. I'm a lifetime member of Community of Christ. I was born and raised in this church. My father was career military, so we actually moved 19 times my first 20 years of life. And one of the things that provided for me was an opportunity to be part of this movement in a lot of different places 
both in the USA and abroad. So I got to participate in congregations that were large, that had 100 to 150 people, uh, and that would have been the congregation in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to little house churches that were congregations. We had a pastor and a financial officer and all the things that you need to be a congregation. But my family of six, my mom and dad and us four girls made up half of the congregation. We met in a pastor's home in a little uh, farm outside Sydney, Nebraska, uh, a very rural area. And he and his wife would line up chairs in their living room and we would go there every Sunday and have our church experience together. Um, I was first ordained in 1996 to the office of elder, and I have served in the offices of high priest and 70. I've also served as a president on the council of presidents of 70. I have now been in full-time employment with the church as a minister for 20 years. This is my 20th year and have um, always served in the USA. I have made occasional trips out to other nations to provide ministry, but my assignment has always been um, here in the USA. Okay, so I'm going to start asking you some questions about sort of just general beliefs of the community of Christ and, and things like that, but you mentioned that you are ordained, and so I'm sure that's a question for people who haven't heard that, because my listeners are predominantly um, either Mormon or non-Mormon who are used to hearing about Mormon patriarchy and priesthood, which is given to males only. So I know this is a huge topic and we could talk for hours on it, but maybe do you want to share with us just maybe an experience about what it was like for you as a woman to be ordained to the priesthood? Sure. So um, Community of Christ provided for ordination in 1984, and that came to us through counsel to the church, which is now considered scripture and part of Doctrine and Covenants, and that would be section 156. Um, I was a young um, mother at the time, and I had three kids that were very close in age. I had a set of twins and a little daughter that was 15 months older than the twins. And my life, as I'm sure many moms who are listening can relate to, was kind of a chaos of day-to-day of diapers and feedings and trying to keep the laundry done up and food on the table and all those things that we do as young mothers. And I remember uh, when this revelation came to the church, um, I was very surprised in some regards and in other regards, not. Um, And I also, because I grew up in a time where men were, um, excuse me, where women were not ordained, I didn't really have it on my radar as something that was a possibility in my life. We did have um, two women on our congregation that were called to serve in priesthood, one a priest and one an elder, within a couple years of um, that time. And I was not called until 1995. And I remember um, having a sense of call to serve in an ordained capacity um, pretty strongly about a year, maybe 18 months before um, my pastor came to visit me. And when I thought about office, I thought perhaps the office of teacher or priest, but nothing happened. And, and I 
eventually got to the point where I thought, well, you know, maybe this is just myself wanting to be more involved in the life of the congregation. And I certainly had many things that I could do in the congregation. There's never a lack of opportunity to serve. Um, The only things that I couldn't do were to um, officiate in the sacraments or ordinances of the church. So the day that my pastor asked to come by our house after church, um, I wasn't sure, you know, what he wanted to talk about, but I certainly did not anticipate that he would be presenting a call. And when he did, um, to me felt completely overwhelming. And I felt very um, unqualified and unprepared to serve in that role. And and to be perfectly honest with you, Lindsay, that is pretty much the way I have felt every time I've received a call to a new office of priesthood. In the context of my congregation, people had been very supportive of women serving in ordained ministry. And I really didn't encounter any difficulty in that regard as far as like overt or pushback about women serving in that role. But what I did begin to realize is that patriarchy has been part of our world for over 7,000 years, and it plays out in ways that sometimes as budding feminists or new into awareness of what it looks like, can't we can see, you know, in our day-to-day life. So I was aware of that in the context of the congregation, but um, never for a minute did I feel like everyone there did not support me, including um, the men who had been serving in priesthood forever. Um, I do know when uh, the first sacrament meeting I was going to be officiating, I asked for one of the um, older men to come over into the hall and go through this with me. And I remember him saying, well, you don't need that, Robin. You've been doing this all your life. And I said, I know, Bob, but I've always been on that side of the pulpit, not up front on the on the platform side. And I think that was an awakening to him that um, this was a whole new thing for women. And we, especially the first generation of women who went into ordained ministry, um, we did not have opportunity to be mentored in the ways that boys and young men had because there was an underlying assumption that someday they most likely would serve in priesthood. And um, that first generation of women in many ways needed the side-by-side mentoring and just helping us understand all the mechanics that go Uh, with things that we do in the life of the church that aren't necessarily written down in a manual or a guide, um, but that we learn side by side with other veteran um, priesthood members. Most of the pushback that I've received as an ordained woman has been in the larger community. And I know when I served as pastor in uh, Longmont, Colorado, my hometown, for seven years, that almost a week did not go by that I did not get some kind of pushback in my connections uh, and encounters with the community. I served in an ecumenical uh, group in the area and it would happen there. I would, uh, people 
I know a couple times someone would call the house because that my number was listed as the pastor for Community of Christ. And I would answer the phone and they would say, I would like to speak to the pastor. And I said, I am the pastor. And on more than one occasion, um, the other person on the other end of the line just hung up because clearly, clearly it was the fact that I was female and not male that was off-putting. So um, but those have been some of the curious ways that, that uh, this has played out for me. Thanks for sharing that. And it's hard for me to interview you on this because I've talked to you so many times about this personally and I've heard you speak. So I forget what people don't know and what people do know about your story. And your story is really great. And didn't you do Why I Stay for Sunstone last year? I did. I did. Was that last year? Hmm. I think I it sure was. did. <laughs> so I can link to that and people can hear more about your faith journey. Um, I'm hoping that we can talk about some of the doctrines that maybe compare and contrast your faith tradition with the tradition that I grew up in. I think we have a lot of things in in common and we have some differences. So let's start with the things that we have in common. What are some of the things that both of our faith traditions share? Well, I would say probably the first thing out of the gate is that we've shared the founding history of the movement. So um, we count 1830 to 1844 absolutely common, one in the same heritage. And of course, um, the life of Joseph Smith and his family leading up to 1830 would all be common as well. Um, where where the uh, paths separate is after the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram, of course, there's um, chaos in Nauvoo. They, things shake out and Brigham is chosen as the new president of the church. There are unsettled relationships in the midst of that because different people have different feelings of who should lead the church. Um, and as I'm sure your listeners know, we got a lot of splinter groups around that time as different people um, left and took small groups of folks with them or people would choose to follow them. Um, and then um, Brigham and a large part of the group in Nauvoo and, and other places began to move out West. And I think that that period of time and because uh, the Mormon church moved so far away and really uh, was isolated in a lot of ways that the two movements, um, those of us who stayed behind, who had become the reorganized church and um, the church that went out with Brigham and others that immigrated out West um, that's when the real changes, I think, began to solidify as those two um, groups continued their path, um, each one um, really attempting to be um, faithful to the Restoration heritage as they understood it. So um, some of the major differences that we would see today and which had um, beginnings during that early time in the 19th century would be um, our understanding and use of temple. Um, I'm sure most of your listeners are very familiar with Mormon temples and the ordinances and ceilings that take place there. Um, Community of Christ, um, we own two temples. One is the Kirtland Temple, the first temple of the movement in Kirtland, Ohio. And the temple, right, I'm actually sitting right now in the temple in Independence, Missouri. 
Um, and we use temple the same way that the early church used the Kirtland temple. It's a place of gathering, um, even community gathering larger um, beyond the church, but gathering, it's a place of education and learning. It's a place of worship and celebration. And it's a place where leaders gather um, to do the work of the church, uh, the kind of work that's associated with meetings and dialogue and deliberation around uh, the business of the church, as well as planning for mission of the church. Our priesthood structures, if you were to look at a flow chart, uh, would look very, very similar. Uh, one of the differences in the offices is that the patriarch, um, as it used to be called in our uh, denomination as well, in Community of Christ is now called evangelist. We used to call it patriarch evangelist. I don't know if you do in the LDS church. Um, but with the ordination of women, the term patriarch was not appropriate. So we dropped that off and call that evangelist. Uh, the other difference is in community of Christ, um, people are called to serve in priesthood, generally as adults, although from time to time, um, teens are called. Um, and they are called to an office that the, the leader of the congregate, the pastor, um, especially for the offices of deacon, teacher, priest, and elder, which are called at the congregational level. Some uh, teens are called into ministry. And we have a lot of people who, who don't serve in priesthood. And people are always, it's just fine to turn a call down. Uh, and that is received without any judgment. Uh, it's totally up to the individual. And, you know, on occasion, we do have folks um, turn down a call to priesthood for a variety of reasons. Um, and so we don't have an automatic uh, system like the LDS church does as long as a young man is active and uh, considered worthy we would expect to see young men serve beginning at age 12, you know, 12, 14, 16, um, deacon, teacher, priest, and then elder at 18 or soon after. Um, that's not uh, any in any way how it goes in community of Christ. So we have adult folks serving in all the offices of the church. And what that looks like when a person magnifies their office of ministry uh, takes on a whole different life when that's in the context of an adult person. For example, my husband serves in the office of deacon, and that was his first call, and he has done that for decades. Um, he, he feels like that is his office to serve in, and he uh, magnifies it and, and has served for many years in that uh, capacity. Um, and others are called to different office over the period of their life. Okay, so um, how do you guys view your prophet? Well, our our prophet president is held in very high regard and is seen as our leader. We look at all of our leaders as human beings who have flaws just like the rest of us. And our prophet president is very available to us. So President Beasy um, visits all over uh, the globe. He attends um, 
reunions, which are our summer family camping tradition. Um, so he will do several of those every summer. He travels for different types of ministry. He came out to Salt Lake City for the Parliament of the World's Religions in the fall of 2015. And if anyone were to walk into, say, one of our campgrounds um, on one day when he's there, you wouldn't be able to tell by looking unless you had seen a picture of him, which one was the president of the church. Because um, he, as we all um, aspire to be, are side by side with sisters. He's incredibly humble. Um, and he I, is, I have he to loving. say, I have to say that this is my experience too. I've been at several events where I'll just be sitting, joking around, having a conversation, and then someone whispers, "That's an apostle from the community of Christ," and it's it's so interesting the culture that the LDS people have versus the culture that you have around leadership. Like you said, there's respect and adoration, but it's not. I would say. I mean, we have sort of the celebrity culture here amongst our yeah. leaders. It's not like that. No, it's not like that. Um, but what President Beasy, the ministry that he provides for the church and the council is deeply respected. And um, we take seriously um, the council that he gives to the church. But as you said, it's not a celebrity or hero worship at all. It's more the role and the mantle of responsibility that he carries. And um, so what do you, what do you see that role being? What is the role that uh, your prophet has? Well, that role provides visionary leadership for the church. And also there's the expectation that whoever fills that office makes themselves completely available to discerning um, the spirit, the guidance of the spirit. And so part of what that role does is provide counsel to the church to be considered for inclusion in the doctrine and covenants, which is also taken very seriously. Um, Continuing revelation is uh, one of our enduring principles. And in community of Christ, that's been a very active part of us becoming as a people and continuing to be shaped and formed in the image of of Jesus. So if you get a community of Christ uh, doctrine and covenants, um, you can see because each one has a little preface that talks about, you know, when it came to the church, when it was approved, who, which president brought it, um, and maybe a few words about what's going on during that time. Um, you can see we've added um, from the time of Joseph Smith III on through to Steve Beasy. So that is part of that as well. So um, one of the One of the best ways I've heard it described to me is that your prophet doesn't function in the way that LDS people would understand a prophet. You consider yourself to be a prophetic people, that God Mm -hmm. speaks through the will of the people, and then the prophet sort of is the one that uh, mediates that or makes the final decision. Is that an accurate way to say it? Yeah, that and that actually, um, that way of looking at it was brought to us by Grant McMurray when he was... um, president of the church prior to Steve Beasy. And he invited us to think of ourselves as a people, not so much as a people with a prophet, but as a prophetic people. And I think in a very tangible way, he was recognizing that the spirit moves in and among the body as much or more as it does through the one who carries the mantle of prophet president. And that that is a joint effort. Um, and so there are, 
are particular avenues um, through which that happens. Um, of course, we practice common consent in a different way as well. Um, we are very focused on ensuring rights of the body. And when we assemble in legislative sessions, people have um, vote and voice. And at our world conference, for example, we have lecterns with microphones can voice their perspective um, for or against, and then the body votes. And um, we have a very lively dialogue around most issues. And um, the vote is not by a long shot unanimous on a lot of things. Okay, there are so, some, some things that would be, you know, close to unanimous, but others. And I've even seen the vote to where they have to get the tellers out onto the floor where we have thousands of people who are delegates and hand count because that's how close it is. And my understanding is each congregation has a delegate. It could be someone as young as eight years old, and then they send the delegate to vote for the congregation at World Conference. Yeah, actually, mission centers are given a... Uh, number that can come from that mission center. So the mission centers at mission center conference uh, nominate and elect delegates to represent them. And we usually have a delegate alternate list in case someone can't serve. Uh, The requirement is to be a member in good standing. And so, yes, at age eight or older, um, people can serve. Okay. uh, Here's another question. Do you ordain black people and do you ordain LGBT people? Yes, because these are both. these are things in Mormonism that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, so go ahead, uh, answer that again. Yes, so we ordain people of color as well as LGBT, um, and they would be subject to the same criteria of anyone else who's eligible to be called to priesthood, which is people are expected to live an ethical uh, life, um, moral life, and. We have, um, you know, a variety of things which are basically just common sense things for how people choose to live. Can you um, give us those values? Give us your shared values. Um, so do you... Your core principles, sorry. Okay, yeah. yeah. So the um, enduring principles for community of Christ are all are called blessings of community, continuing revelation, grace and generosity, responsible choices, pursuit of peace on earth, sacredness of creation, unity in diversity, and the worth of all persons. Is there one of those that particularly speaks to you in your role as apostle? Well, I think of these as a circle of principles or core values, and they are connected one to the other. The one that I think is very critical and has guided Community of Christ on our path since the very early days is worth of all persons. And I think um, part of the struggle of our journey is as we live today and into the future of going deeper and deeper in our understanding of what that means. Um, Worth of all persons is what brought us to be open to the ordination of women. Worth of all persons is what brought us to having national conferences to consider full inclusion for LGBTQIA. So that one is very, very important. And it also um, guides us 
than our pursuit of peace um, and abolishing poverty and ending suffering. So we have five mission initiatives, um, invite people to Christ, abolish poverty and suffering, um, pursuit of peace, develop disciples to serve, and experience congregations in mission. So for us to be engaged actively engaged in making the world a better place at our congregational level as well as at our world church level. Now, just a few more questions, then I'll let you go. Uh, What does your cosmology look like for Mormon heaven? What does the afterlife look like for Community of Christ? Do you still have the three degrees of glory? Do you have the plan of salvation or plan of happiness, as LDS people call it? So we certainly have the three degrees of glory in our uh, scripture because it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we have that as well. And we talked about that a lot, I remember, as a little girl. I think as we have lived into this call to follow Jesus, that we have stepped back from needing to have a prescribed um, description of what afterlife looked at looks like. And for us, when we step back and really read that scripture and listen deeply and read um, Doctrine and Covenants and the Bible and Book of Mormon, I think what we've recognized is this uh, prophetic impulse that Joseph Smith was discerning spoke more to a universal um, concept of salvation as opposed to um, putting people into categories of good, better, best, whatever. And as we experience God in the world today and continue to receive um, God's counsel through the Doctrine and Covenants, um, that has taken us into even more focus in making the world a better place, that um, we part of our call, core to our call, is to bring the world closer to peace, to bring the world to the experience the King of God, Zion, um, on this planet. And as we focus on that, we rest in the knowledge that God's love and grace are boundless. And whatever the particulars are of what afterlife looks like, we are confident in our relationship with God and all of God's creation, the relationship with God, that that will be with God and loved by God uh, no matter what. Now that sounds, that can sound really weird because we think, well, gosh, well, why does anybody want to be good if they see themselves as saved no matter what? And I think what we do on earth matters. I think it matters a lot. It matters a lot to the welfare of our world now and our world of the future. And that is tied to salvation. That is tied to Uh, liberation and God's love coming to full fruition uh, for the world. So it makes sense to us and we value um, choices. So responsible choices is part of that. And in a sense, we we taste eternal life now as we live in close relationship with God and with each other and with ourselves. Um, We can see glimpses of Uh, the already not yet presence of eternal life. I think one way that you phrased it to me that I thought was really beautiful, as you said, you know, we spent so much time trying to think about what, how to get to heaven that we weren't building moments of Zion now. 
And so you're interested in building moments of Zion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of our energy goes into the here and now and, um, and communing with God here. Just a few other questions. How do you guys view sin and repentance? Do people have to confess to bishops like they do here? Do you have worthiness interviews? How do you look at all of that? So we do not have worthiness interviews, and we do not, um, in the context of not having worthiness interviews, there's not an expectation that people would go to the pastor to confess. Now, everyone is fully welcome to meet with the pastor anytime, and on occasion, people have heavy hearts and they need to talk about what's going on in their life, but that would not be an expectation. And we have the sacrament of communion the first Sunday of every month, usually. Sometimes we have it at other special times. And that's a time where all of us are invited to reflect on our lives and to um, have um, confession or repentance, um, to turn ourselves fully toward God, to let go and repent, um, ask forgiveness for those things that we feel have separated us from God. So sin, one definition of sin is um, being disconnected from God or choosing behaviors or attitudes um, that separate us from God, which means things that we choose that harm others or separate us from others or fracture relationship um, would be part of sin. However, Sin also can be a corporate thing. So, for example, um, we all, you and I live in a very affluent nation, and we make choices every day, a lot of them we don't even think about, that impact other people and impact our, our planet on a global scale. So we can do things that impact um, poverty and oppression, that we can make choices that either help improve that or contribute to oppressing others. So um, paying attention to how we spend our money, what kind of companies we are paying our money to, do they use um, fair labor practices? Um, Are they wise consumers? How we treat our planet? Do we recycle things? We know that those who live on the margins are hurt most by um, climate change and other um, environmental issues. So Sin is also a corporate thing. And as a people, we can choose um, to try to restore the planet to health. We can make amends for relationships. As a people, we can confess and ask forgiveness for things we may have done. I know in the life of Community of Christ, at One World Conference, the prophet president of the church stated that our split, we had a lot of people that left the church over ordination of women. and some of those were, you know, people in the same family split to different movements, has has confessed that, you know, some of the things we did as a church were not the things that we would do now if we had to do it over again. And, and for forgiveness and anything that we have done to contribute to that fissure and fracture of relationship and wanting to reach across the aisle, so to speak, and to um, be friends, to at least be able to have dialogue and recognize Um, recognize our differences, but also recognize that um, in the context of Christian beliefs, um, Christ makes us one, even if we attend different churches. So um, 
sin can be individual or it can be corporate. And I think fracture of relationship is a key indicator of how we sometimes get ourselves into a place that's that's not helpful and healthy. Um, this temple that I'm sitting in right now was dedicated to the pursuit of peace, healing, and reconciliation. So reconciling ourselves um, with ourselves and with others goes a long way towards reconciling and keeping our relationship with God um, nurtured. Callings. <clears throat> Callings are something in the LDS church that we are given as an assignment to volunteer for a church, but a lot of people feel a lot of pressure around those callings sometimes. Um, and, you know, the, at least growing up, I felt like we could never say no. If you were called to a position, whether it was cleaning the church or, you know, teaching Relief Society or whatever, you don't say no. How do you do callings in your church? So in our congregations, we have lots of roles and jobs and responsibilities to serving on the building committee, to teaching classes, to be in charge of fellowship, to plan worship. I mean, the list goes on. And I'm sure it's not that much different than award. And most pastors invite folks to be thinking about um, what they would like to do, how they feel a sense of connection with a variety of roles, um, to consider their personal bandwidth. Sometimes people are going through really tough times or intense um, situations in their family or with work life, and they don't have as much time to serve as they might other times. So we try to work with people and to help um, them discover what they feel called to do and what makes their heart sing in service. Um, also, another role of pastor is to help people get in touch with their gifts, giftedness and skills. And to help people grow in that way. So to take classes, to um, participate in different experiences that will help develop them and their leadership skills and their capacity to serve. So, But that would never be uh, something that there was an expectation that they the person would say yes. So people certainly can say no or they can suggest, you know, an alternative way of serving our congregations tend to be smaller, so we streamline a lot of the jobs and um, kind of collapse some together so that that are connected. And pretty much everybody has something they do to help out one way or another. Even the kids um, have little things that they do. And I think I have just one more question, then I'll let you go. How do you view the Book of Mormon? This is a something I'm asking Seth about as well, but it's sort of, you know, the rumor is that Community of Christ doesn't has has rejected the Book of Mormon. <laughs> so the Book of Mormon is one of our three standard books. So it is considered scripture along with the Doctrine and Covenants and the Bible. Um, we do not um, see the Book of Mormon as a test of faith or fellowship. So we do not have a dogmatic understanding that everyone must say, I believe the Book of Mormon in, or that I believe it as a certain uh, whatever. Um, we don't have to ascribe to a certain set of statements about the Book of Mormon. Um, so I would say that across the membership of the church, we have folks 
who have a very literal understanding of the Book of Mormon, the gold plates, um, Joseph Smith's interpretation, how that document came to be, to people who are very skeptical about the Book of Mormon. And some, I would say, would just assume that the church um, set it aside and no longer uh, consider it scripture to everything in between. So I think the fact that we do not have a literal inerrant view of scripture in general on any scripture, and that um, certainly pertains to the Bible, that that also allows us to understand that the Book of Mormon can be inspired text any way that we look at it. And it certainly is part of our early church, part of the founding movement. Um, There are a lot of questions about how it came into being. Um, And I think the final analysis is God's hand was in the midst of that, regardless of how it came to be. It spoke profoundly and prophetically to many people and continues to. Um, At the same time, it's not something um, that divides us as a people if people have different perspectives on the Book of Mormon. So it's also true that you have people that, I don't know that atheist is a good word, but you have people all over the spectrum that you allow in your congregations that have all sorts of different views on God. Is that correct? Yeah. So sometimes um, that would be said, um, do people have a high Christology or a low Christology? Or where are people on their understanding of of God. Um, yeah, it's, it's very diverse. We have, if you look online and read, um, sharing in community of Christ, that document would say what we as a people stand behind. Some of us have different shades of understanding of some of what's stated in that book and that's okay. And we also understand that faith is a journey and um, all of us, I certainly have a different understanding of all of these things now than I did when I was five, when I was 15, when I was 25, when I was 40. Um, And I celebrate that. So it allows us to be very open Um, to talk, to discuss all kinds of issues, to learn from each other, to really um, be open to growing and becoming and understanding that our relationship with God can change and that doesn't make it better or worse. It's the act of the journey, being on the journey together, um, being in relationship with God, with each other and with ourselves and um, living life together and trying to be as much like Jesus as we can be, um, to be loving and respectful, and to be aware that there are so many on our planet that suffer and that we can make a difference in the world. Well, thanks so much, Robin, for coming on. Is there anything else that you want us to know about Community of Christ? Well, I just want to say people are always welcome to come and visit community of Christ, uh, wherever you are. Um, We welcome all and we would love uh, to have you join us for one time or just to hang out for a while. Great. And I'll link to to all of that. Um, So again, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Lindsay. You take care and thanks for everything you do.
So Seth Bryant, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. So I grew up in Sandy, Utah, was in a uh, Jack Mormon family. So we went to church on Christmas and Easter. So I, I started to rebel when I was 14 and I became active in the LDS church. And that made my dad uh, either concerned or angry. In any case, he had me mow the lawn every Sunday just so I didn't end up like one of those Mormons in his words. Yeah, I love that. It's so funny. Okay, so you were you became one of those Mormons, though, didn't you? I, <laughs> yeah, I did. I went on a mission, and I actually met my wife in the mission field. She was also serving there. I was the district leader when she first came out, and then... Oh, after, you're one of those Mormons that meets her yeah, spouse of, on the mission. Yeah, so... I'm one of those, those Mormons and, (laughs) but we didn't, we didn't date. There wasn't anything, no sparks, nothing until we got home, started dating. Right. Because you were one of those Mormons. Like you don't, you're not naughty. Exactly. No, I was a really good kid. I really was. I went to Westminster college and was an English major. And along the way I started to have some pretty serious questions about church history. And I have a brother who's gay. And so it's like 2003, 2004. Um, And I'm beginning to be very frustrated, but I still think it's the one true church, right? So I'm in this, this place of where I'm holding on with everything I've got and, but I'm also really, really frustrated, and I'm headed towards a breaking point. And I, kinda, I know that I'm headed towards a breaking point, but I, I don't know. I'm just Because it doesn't seem like there's any other option. So I go into a graduate program in religion at the University of Florida, and while I'm doing research, I end up in a community of Christ congregation. I don't go to join. I'm there just to study the sacrament, which um, they call communion. I guess we call communion now. (laughs) So I'm there watching this take place. They use the same prayers out of the Doctrine and Covenants. um, Very, very similar with one really big difference, and that is that it's a woman who's saying the prayers. And as that experience happens, I am overwhelmed with what I would call the spirit. And it's the first time I have had a spiritual experience in two or three years. And I had been pleading for something, anything, anywhere, you know, elders quorum, sacrament meeting, the temple, anywhere. And it, happens at at what I at that moment thought of as this apostate little offshoot group. And so I'm actually angry. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm, there's this incredible sense of peace, but I'm angry and confused. Like, why is this happening? And in that moment, I gain an, at least this is me reflecting back on it, but there's just this sense that, that God's kingdom is much bigger and that if I'm willing 
to take the blinders off. I can be shown something bigger, but I can never go back. And I decided to open up to that vision. And so that's really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it really watching it's that watching her give that prayer that I'd given hundreds of times myself, hearing it, it was just, it was incredibly powerful. And it really was like that rooftop moment um, when there's that sense of me saying, you know, God is saying, take and eat. And I'm saying, no, that's unclean. And God's saying, don't call unclean those who I love and, you know, are part of my my kingdom. And, you know, my, my world was so little in so many ways. And once I w- was willing to open my heart up, I, I, for a while I thought, well, I can still stay LDS because I really think that the LDS church is part of that kingdom. I just don't think they have a monopoly on it, but I couldn't deny the fact that I had this experience within community of Christ. And so about nine months later, both Jen, my wife, uh, both of us were baptized into community of Christ. And I want to say something really cool. I got to receive communion or the sacrament from your wife, Jen, in Kirtland this spring. And that was a really beautiful experience. She blessed. She's an elder now, right? Right. Yeah. So she blessed the sacrament and... um I got a partake of it from her and that was really, it was really a cool experience because we were in the Kirtland temple and we had Mormon fundamentalists and we had LDS and ex-LDS and atheists and community of Christ. And it was just this beautiful moment, I think for all of us. Yeah. Some of the most uh, moving and powerful experiences I have had have been sharing in the sacraments with my wife, like officiating, I guess, in what you would call ordinances in an LDS sense with my wife. And, you know, I, I just, I wouldn't have had that experience. And I, for community of Christ, there's this awareness that God doesn't limit ordination to just half of the population. And that if that were the case, you would miss out on so much potential and giftedness. Tell us what you're doing for Community of Christ now, speaking of that giftedness, because in your short time since you've been converted, it's only been, a f- how long has it been now? Just um, it celebrated 10 years in April. Yeah, and so in 10 years, you've done a lot in the church. So why don't you talk about those things? So Jen and I were both ordained elders about a year after we joined, and I did an internship with the church for about a year um, and went and went to school for a while. I ended up becoming a chaplain in the military that was, uh, I was endorsed by community of Christ. I did that for three years and I was a Navy chaplain assigned to the Marines. I served with third battalion, seventh Marines, an infantry battalion. And, and I went to Afghanistan with them. And then I was um, asked to serve in uh, in Utah, and I ended up serving as the pastor over the Salt Lake congregation and helping establish some new congregations or revive some some uh, some older congregations that that had been there for a long time but had kind of dwindled and disappeared 
throughout the state. And so I did that for a couple of years. And then now I'm serving as the director of Kirtland Temple. So I'm over the historic site and absolutely love uh, being out here and being at the temple. The temple is such an incredible place. Well, since you're a Brighamite and um, I don't know, what can we call you? Emma's church? Right. Since you come from both, um, I thought it would be good to help you help us debunk some myths because growing up, I heard all of these myths about Emma's church and about Emma Smith, which we've tried to sort of debunk on the podcast. But let's talk about some of those. One of the biggest ones, the rumor that you guys have to talk about every single year is, is the community of Christ going to sell the temple to the LDS church? And the LDS people would say, are you going to give it back to us as if it was ours to begin with? Yeah, so I don't lose any sleep at night over this question. And if anybody should lose sleep, it should be me, right? I'd be out of a job. I No, was, there's, there's absolutely no plans whatsoever um, for that. And, and to go even deeper in the question, you know, about giving it back, I understand where that question comes from because the temple, Kirtland Temple means so much to all of us. And so it just seems natural to think that, you know, it, it belongs and legally it does, it does belong to community of Christ, but it, but in terms of its meaning, it does, it belongs to all of us. Um, and I don't think you have to have the title to it to say that it's meaningful to you. So, um, you know, Carl Anderson, who's a Mormon historian, who's been here for many, many years and responsible for a lot of the healing that's taken place between the two traditions, he points out that Mormons will go and visit the Garden of Gethsemane and have these powerful moving experiences. And then he'll say, well, wait a second, does he plans of returning it back to us? You know, because it's not necessary for uh, the church to own everything in order for God's spirit to be there. And what a small conception of God and of the spirit we must have if we think that um, it can only, you know, God can only be in places that are held, the titles held by a certain institution. Did the Community of Christ denounce the Book of Mormon? No, the Book of Mormon's part of the canon. So since the beginning, the Bible has been foundational scripture. The Book of Mormon um, has never been required. You've never been required to accept it as a test of fellowship. It's always been secondary to the Bible, as well as the Doctrine and Covenants has been secondary. So with having that biblical foundation, uh, it, it puts Community of Christ or the reorganization on a different trajectory from post-Nauvoo and uh, well, it's I mean we're well after Nauvoo by 1860, but it puts us on a different trajectory than the LDS Church, which focuses a whole lot on the Book of Mormon, and it's um, using the Book of Mormon as proof of its one true churchness. We don't do that, and so when Mormons look at us and they're like, "Why aren't you using the Book of Mormon the same way? You must have renounced it." Well, we don't believe we're the one true church, and we don't use the Book of Mormon to try to prove that we're the one true church. You know, that, that logical argument that, well, if the book's true, then Joseph's a prophet, and if he's a prophet, then the church is true, and you should join. Like, that doesn't have any purchase within community of Christ. 
But just because that's the case doesn't mean that the Book of Mormon isn't part of the canon. And, the, you know, the truth is that um, it's, it is used maybe to varying degrees. There's a wide uh, range of beliefs on it, anywhere from literal belief that uh, Lamanites were running around on the American continent to those of us that would think that it's 19th century scriptural allegory. Um, I, I really think that we need to move towards that latter opinion because of the, um, the damage against the indigenous peoples that the narrative can cause. I, um, but in any event, there's a wide range of beliefs. And like I said, it is part of our canon. I'm trying to think of some of the other stereotypes that at least I held about the, you know, the RLDS growing up. Um, one of them, I think, was the name change community of Christ was you were rejecting all Mormonism in general, Joseph Smith and all of that. And clearly that's not the case. Yeah. So, I mean, originally the church was named the Church of Christ. In some ways, we've gotten, we've gotten even closer back to what the church was originally. The the idea behind Community of Christ was to have a name that better reflects our mission for the 21st century. And the spirit of the Restoration back in the 1830s was to be living and pliable and, and responsive to where God was calling you. That's the whole point to the Restoration. So if, if uh, you don't give us the kind of space to do that, but we have to be locked into one moment of time— well, then we're not living in the same way that the saints were living in the 1830s, but we've become a museum and like caretakers to this museum exhibit. And, you know, I, I don't, the church's name wasn't static in the 1830s. It doesn't have to be static in the, in the 21st century. Let me see. Am I missing any stereotypes? We talked about that. We talked about the temple uh, property. What else, what else is a common stereotype that I think Mormons have towards Community of Christ? Well, they'll ask if we've joined the National Council of Churches, um, and, and in doing so, did we have to renounce the Book of Mormon or our identity in some way as members of the Restoration? We have to become Protestant, I guess, in order to do that. And for a long time, um, our answer was no, we hadn't joined, but just a few years ago, we did join. And when we joined, it was really interesting that the other members said that our distinctives, like Restoration Scripture, were essential to our identity. So for people who thought that membership would require us giving up the Book of Mormon, they were you know, 100% wrong that the other churches within the National Council of Churches said, no, this is, this is who, this is what makes you who you are. And by having this unique journey that you've been led by the Spirit you've been on, and, and having you come and join our council, you actually add diversity and to, to our group, and that's a wonderful thing. So we don't want you to change. We don't want some uh, monolithic amalgam that we all look the same. That's not the point. So, you know, some of, some of those charges um, that are leveled, even, even if we hadn't joined, um, 
the National Council of Churches, people who level that charge, I would just ask them, well, even if we hadn't, would you still accept the church, community of Christ, as uh, a, a true church? And the answer is almost always no. It is a no. You know, if we hadn't changed our name, if we were still the RLDS church, would we be acceptable to you? The answer is no. So these these points that they want to argue on, I mean, they're it's just kind of their moot, right? It, it just it goes back to they want to just fight over who's the true successor, who's the one true church, and if you want to you want to argue that and and you know and and that's how you build your identity, then then that's fine. It's just um, in in the twenty first century, community of Christ has a vision that we seek to be a true church. We don't deny that others can have an experience with God. And our calling is to, to, not, um, to not have these kind of fights, but really to go out into the world to make the world a better place, to lift up a message of peace and to seek justice. So I think that's the last question I want to ask you, because I know it's a busy time for you and Kirtland right now. So I appreciate you even taking the time to do this. But can we talk about the one true church narrative? Because you yourself admitted that you had that narrative and, and I did too. And of course this podcast has really showed me that, that everyone thinks they're the one true church and you know, we all have these doctrines that are similar and then we have these doctrines that are different. How has your idea of this one true church evolved? So when I, when I first came into the church, I was, I really, honestly, I um, struggled with the idea of it, in part because I'd been treated so poorly as an inactive Mormon kid. I thought, how can this be the one true church when I was treated like crap? And my answer that I kind of came up with was, well, it's because eventually we'll get to Zion, right? We're just, it, it is the one true church, but we'll get there. So I, I probably have a different experience. Um, and I even, even early on, I, there, very early on, there was an interest in looking, is there another potential restoration church out there? And I, and I even had a sense of that I should, look into what was the RLDS church then, because I had such an aversion to the LDS church after being treated the way that I was treated. Um, but, but I eventually just, I don't know, drank the Kool-Aid, got with the program, right? And said, okay, fine. I see the potential within this. These are good people. I think they're misguided at times. And I thought, I'll just try to help um, them to be better and hope eventually that we'll get to Zion. So I, but along the way, I, there would be, I, I would have this problem where I had no problem when I would teach about um, principles of justice and peace um, of treating people well, that I would feel what I would call the spirit. I would feel this affirming spirit, but when I would dimmer switch would slowly, it would slowly be dimmed. And so my conversion to that idea was more social or intellectual than it was a spiritual conversion. And because of, you know, my, um, maybe, maybe because of what I'd gone through when I finally, um, 
encountered community of Christ, uh, it was it was a lot easier for me to make that transition. Really, it wasn't one true church that that held me up for nine months. Uh, it was eternal families. You know, I uh, that's that was that was the really tough thing. I I knew that theologically there was a huge difference in how the next life and salvation is viewed and community of Christ doesn't frame their answers on salvation, or at least they didn't then in a way that was really appeasing for somebody who had been raised on this, um, this image that salvation and happiness is all around uh, being with your family forever. And so that's, that's mainly what held me up. And eventually I got, I got to where I could see that if, in community of Christ, the idea is that God is reconciling and restoring all of creation. And if that's the case, then in the next life, of course, our families are going to be there, that we don't necessarily need any sort of extra ordinances to access God's love. But that's, that's part of the one true church mentality, right? Is you get locked sure. in, like, if I leave this, if I give up this doctrine, it will not be replaced anywhere else. I mean, I had that feeling too as an LDS person, like the thing that we say about our funerals are, you know, our funerals are better because isn't it sad people don't believe, you know, they don't know that they're going to be with their families in the next life, but we do. And then it turns out everybody else around the world never even thought that they wouldn't be with their families. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I think that's a hard thing to give up um, because you think that you're walking away from that idea only to discover it already exists everywhere. Well, with the exception of when I was on my mission, we taught the idea of eternal families to this one couple, and they were like, I didn't realize it, but they must have been having marital troubles because they kicked us out of the house. They're like, if you're telling us that we have to be together forever, then get out because this is not the church. <laughs> I love that. Well, I can say that I know plenty of LDS people that feel the exact same way, and they're very yeah. faithful. So uh, I think that's the the downside to eternal families. It's like, are you kidding me? I have to be with my family forever. So I mean, most most parents are okay with the idea of their kids, right? But spouses sometimes can be a tough thing if there's been estrangement. So you're right. I mean, the one true church and the temple, it's all tied in together. You're absolutely right. Well, um, is there anything else you want people to know about Community of Christ? I guess the biggest thing I want people to and, and this is coming from my position at the temple, is that Community of Christ really seeks to be a, a place of sanctuary. And one of our ways that we see salvation is offering hospitality. And so we're not, we're not interested, in, if you're happy, we're not interested in, in trying to convert you. Um, in fact, it's just not who we are. We don't actively go out and try to convert anybody. But I, I really want people to feel comfortable in coming and visiting the temple. It's a, it's a safe place where you don't have to worry that we're going to try to um, force a narrative or some sort of testimony uh, upon you. And if you don't fit a certain mold, you know, you're, you're going to be judged. Like, this is a safe place. Um, and, and our congregations... Um, ideally, and I, I think in most cases, are safe harbors. And, you know, um, if if you come for 
a Sunday or a week or you come for a month or you come for a year, I mean, or the rest of your life, you're always welcome. Um, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to convert or whatever. We just, we really just want to be a transformative force in the world that offers sanctuary for people to gather in and then sends people forth out into the world to make the world a better place. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you, Seth. And thank you for taking time to come on the podcast today. Well, thank you. And with that, I would like to thank Robin Linkhart, Lachlan Mackay, Seth Bryant, all dear friends of mine from the Community of Christ for coming on and explaining more about their faith and their church. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for all those who are supporting me, especially those on Patreon. If you're not a supporter, consider donating or becoming one today. And we'll see you next episode. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.